Exit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Stephen M. Bainbridge, William D. Warren Distinguished Professor of Law at UCLA School of Law. We will discuss his essay, BRT, Stakeholders and Corporate Purpose, which is published in the Corporate Board. So welcome to the show, Stephen. Thank you. Delighted to be here. I'm really excited to have you on. I'm sure a lot of listeners are already familiar with you and your work, but you're one of the most notable corporate law scholars in the country. And your casebook is, as as I understand it, the, the most widely used among law schools in the country. So I'm sure you're well known to a lot of my, my law school listeners. Um, I, I wonder if you could start by kind of just situating people who maybe aren't that familiar with corporate law and corporate governance in the relevant principles that are at stake. I mean, what is the sort of conventional wisdom on the legal duties of the directors of a corporation to the corporation? Well, that's that's a great question. And it's a great question because there is no conventional wisdom, or at least no single conventional wisdom. Uh, My late colleague and friend, Lynn Stout, uh, wrote a book shortly before she passed away at a sadly very early age, um, entitled The The Shareholder Wealth Maximization Myth, where she claimed that the law gives directors full discretion to manage the corporation towards socially responsible goals, not just uh, towards the end of maximizing shareholder wealth. Um, And that stands in sharp contrast, of course, to uh, Milton Friedman famously wrote an article in the 1970s about the social responsibility of business being to maximize shareholder profit. And there's a debate that's been going on, at least in the legal literature, since the 1930s. It started in the Harvard Law Review with an exchange between Adolf Burrow and Merrick Dodd about whether uh, corporate managers should be primarily concerned with profit for the shareholders or primarily concerned with uh, ensuring that the corporation treats its stakeholders well, treats society well, and is responsible uh, to society. And periodically, it seems like about every 20 years, there's been a resurgence of of that debate. Um, But in particular, over the last 10 years, that's gotten especially large amounts of attention, both from you know, legal academics, uh, but also in broader society. Um, and and I point to four things that I think uh, have really uh, played a role in that. One is the emergence of what's called ESG investing, uh, environmental, social, and corporate governance. 
And it was a long time sort of niche investment movement called socially responsible investing that invested in companies that were perceived to be socially responsible using various metrics. Um, what ESG investing did was to identify metrics in the environmental area, uh, the social area, and governance that they could use in addition to earnings and profit to assess how companies are performing and whether companies are going to have sustainable profits over the long haul. Um, a second factor was the rise of so-called benefit corporations. Uh, the 35 states now, including Delaware, which is you know, the most important corporate governance state, um, now authorize these corporations that are expressly allowed to make trade-offs between profit-making and pursuit of some public benefit, whatever that might be. And there's now about 5,000 of these around the country. And then as we saw in the 2020 election, there's been a lot of political attention uh, on these issues. Both Senators Warren and Sanders uh, addressed them in, in their campaigns uh, with sort of comprehensive plans to improve corporate social responsibility. Um, the Biden administration is taking more of a piecemeal type approach. But for example, there's been a lot of talk this week about the Securities Exchange Commission under the Biden administration moving to require more extensive disclosures about corporate climate risk, for example. But the main thing, and the thing that I wrote about in the article that, that uh, you invited me on to talk about, uh, was in 2019, the Business Roundtable, which is this organization of about 200 chief executive officers of large U.S. corporations. Um, and has long been very influential in the business lobbying uh, in Congress and in the states, made a major change in its longstanding position on this issue. Uh, for over 30 years, the Business Roundtable had issued a series of statements that basically said, very Friedman-esque, the purpose of business is to make a profit for the shareholders. But in 2019, they changed that and they said, Going forward, uh, our companies are going to share a fundamental commitment to all of our stakeholders. And we commit our companies to be run for the benefit of all stakeholders, uh, customers, employees, suppliers, communities, and shareholders. And the question that I wanted to address was sort of, number one, are they allowed to do that? <laughs> from a legal perspective, and number two, um, why are they doing this now? Uh, and those are sort of some of the issues the article's addressed to. Well, you suggested earlier that the Delaware courts are sort of the lodestar when it comes to thinking about corporate law and corporate governance. Is the BRT statement that you're talking about and this kind of change of position being taken by 
the BRT consistent or inconsistent with the sort of longstanding legal understandings promulgated by the Delaware courts? Well, that's a really good and really controversial question. A Delaware case involving uh, Craigslist about 10 years ago said that uh, basically the purpose of a corporation is to make a profit for its shareholders and that the discretion of the directors is to be used towards that end. Um, And I have interpreted that as meaning what it says, that as a matter of Delaware law, the duty of the directors is to pursue shareholder wealth and not to make trade-offs between shareholder wealth and, um, you know, the health of the employees or the community or what have you. Now, having said that, the Delaware courts also embrace um, a doctrine that that uh, certainly the your lawyer and law student listeners will have heard of called the business judgment rule. And the business judgment rule is a presumption that directors are acting in good faith and that they're acting in the reasonable belief that what they're doing is in the company's best interest. And so unless there's some sort of egregious misconduct, like the directors committing fraud, causing the company to behave illegally, um, engaging in self-dealing, making decisions that are grossly uninformed, the business judgment rule says to courts, you don't review the merits of the board's decision. So let's say you had a board of directors that um, said, okay, um, we've noticed that our employees have been suffering a lot of injuries. So we're going to spend a lot of money to make our plants safer. And even above and beyond what federal law requires. And if a shareholder objected to that, the board of directors might say something like, Well, look, in the long run, healthier, happier employees are going to be more productive. And so in the long run, this is a profitable decision, even though in the short run, it's going to cost a lot of money. And under the business judgment rule, a court simply would not um, decide who had it right. You know, the court simply wouldn't ask is the board right that in the long term, uh, this is going to be beneficial to the shareholders? Now, what happens, though, in some cases is you have situations like in the Craigslist case where the directors just said, we don't care about shareholder profit, right? Um, And in addition, there's a set of cases mostly involving corporate mergers and acquisitions, where the business judgment rule doesn't really apply. And courts have said in those cases that boards have to get the best possible deal for the shareholders without regard to, you know, the impact on employees or whatever. So you've got this, you've got a a rule that gives the boards lots of discretion most of the time. 
And But the underlying question is, towards what end should their discretion be directed? Uh, and I think the answer to that is um, the Delaware law says shareholder wealth maximization. But again, there's a lot of folks out there who are going to say, well, it doesn't matter because the business judgment rule gives boards complete discretion anyway. To which my response is, yeah, but not complete. Well, so one question I've long had is sort of what's the distinction between a shareholder and a stakeholder? Who's a stakeholder and how do we know who's a stakeholder? That's a good question. Um, the term stakeholder originated uh, back in the 1960s in the business ethics literature. And it was basically designed to capture individuals and organizations that have a stake, have a financial interest in the success and health of the company, but don't own part of the company, right? So we, we think of the shareholders as the owners of the company. But there are other constituencies, people like most obviously the company's employees, that have a real strong interest in the company's success, right? Um, employees don't want the company to go under, certainly. Um, the company's customers, uh, the company's suppliers, um, the communities uh, in which the company does business. All those constituencies can be vulnerable to corporate actions that benefit the shareholders, but have ripple effects among these other groups. And, and I'm thinking, for example, of when a long time ago, but Phillips Petroleum for many years had its headquarters in Bartlesboro, uh, Oklahoma, a town of about 35,000 people. And they moved their headquarters to the big city. And half the people that lived in that town either worked directly for Phillips or worked for companies that provided services to Phillips or worked for grocery stores and gas stations and so forth that were depended on Phillips employees shopping there. And the town was devastated and it took it decades to recover. Um, and that's the kind of thing that, that folks who are concerned about stakeholders worry about, that um, corporations engage, corporations are like an elephant going through the jungle. And even when they don't intend to, they can have a lot of collateral damage on, you know, small folks uh, who, who do business with them or uh, compete with them. You know, you think about, for example, Walmart. When, a, when Walmart moves into a small town, the impact of Walmart coming to town on, uh, you know, drug stores and grocery stores and gas stations is well documented that, that they have, um, you know, a significant effect on local business. And so those are the sort of folks that, that the stakeholder theorists are concerned with. Well, so you mentioned that in a lot of cases, maybe most cases, the business judgment rule makes a lot of these disputes sort of non non litigable, as it were. Um, 
I mean, I can't help but feel like on some level, it's sort of a philosophical or normative dispute or debate about sort of how we should think about the role of boards and our expectations of boards in relation to corporate actions and corporate decisions. And, and I wonder about the relationship between the responsibilities we put on boards and the responsibilities we put on government and whether maybe some of the concerns people have are actually concerns about government. Well, let me see if I can, I can divide that into two different pieces. And the first piece is I think your comment about, well, what are we really arguing about here? Is, isn't this just philosophy and, and business ethics as opposed to, um, you know, actually arguing about the law? And there's, there's a certain extent to which that's right. But we, we know that the law has had a significant impact on what gets taught in business schools. And there's there's quite a bit of evidence that, that in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, that the Friedman view that you're supposed to maximize shareholder wealth became a core accepted part of the business school curriculum. And you had generations of executives coming out of business school with that mindset. And if you go back and you look like at the textbooks they were using, they cited things like, you know, the Dodge case, the old Dodge versus Ford Motors case. They cited legal rules. And in addition, um, I think one of the most important pieces that's been written on sort of the relationship between corporate law and boards of directors um, was a piece that, that Ed Rock wrote, gosh, I think back in the 1990s, um, called Saints and Sinners. And it was in the UCLA Law Review. And, and basically Ed's thesis was that the Delaware courts recognized that their pronouncements get translated through typically law firm memos to clients um, and on to executives. And the, the Delaware courts often write little morality tales as their opinion. And that gets sort of passed on to executives in the form of these law firm client memos. These executives are never going to read, uh, you know, uh, one of these actual decisions, but they do read these law firm client memos and that these law firm client memos go a long way towards inculcating a particular worldview that, yeah, the law requires you to maximize shareholder wealth. And so, you know, I think that that is largely correct. And so we're not just talking about philosophy. We're also talking about a set of rules that get translated into um, how business goes about functioning. The second part of what you asked, I think, is can we expect business to voluntarily be socially responsible? 
assuming that's what we want. And I am very skeptical of that. And I'll give you the, the example that I cite a lot is um, Mark Benioff, who is the chief executive officer of Salesforce.com. And Mark Benioff is a self-proclaimed social justice warrior. He believes in woke capitalism. He describes himself as a woke CEO. Uh, and he's been very active in pushing things like this business roundtable statement. Last year, 2020, uh, in the fall, pandemic raging, um, and everything else that happened last year, Salesforce announces to its employees that it's going to lay off 1,000 of Salesforce's 54,000 employees before Christmas. So this is like about a month before Thanksgiving. And what Salesforce is saying is, by Christmas, 2% of you are going to lose your jobs. Happy holidays. And that was one day after. That announcement was made one day after Salesforce had announced record quarterly sales, record quarterly revenues, record quarterly earnings. So this is like, you know, the company that's the poster child for socially aware business being being more profitable than ever and letting go to 2% of its employees in the middle of a pandemic and the, with the holidays coming up. And, I, you know, I, I don't even think Scrooge would have done that, you know? So I think that, you know, if the goal is to have business behave in ways that you think are socially responsible, you have to look at things like what Warren and Sanders are proposing. Um, now, whether or not we want the government to do that is, an, is a matter of considerable debate. But I think if, 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 if you're a social justice person counting on the business roundtable to walk the walk rather than just talking the talk um, would be naive. Yeah, well, so returning to that, I mean, does it, at the end of the day, does it really matter what the business roundtable said? I mean, they can't change the law. They're just a business, like, business organization, sort of like a professional organization telling their members, like, expressing the beliefs of their members. They can't change the law that governs their own companies or anything does it matter what they say what should we take away from what they say there's a very cynical sort of conspiracy theory view that i kind of believe um you know you and i follow each other on twitter and you know that i dote on conspiracy theories and this one basically says look at the timing of the business roundtable announcement it was in 2019, just as the uh, presidential election was getting going, 
Warren and Sanders were were in, um, you know, gearing up for the Democratic primaries. Um, Senator Warren had introduced a bill, uh, the uh, Accountable Corporation Act, didn't pass, but it would have had a lot of these sort of mandatory corporate social responsibility things. And the the theory was that what the business roundtable was doing was betting that either Warren or Sanders or somebody in their uh, economic mindset uh, would become president. Uh, We already had the Democrats controlling the House, of course. And then what the BRT was basically doing was trying to stave off regulation uh, by progressive politicians. That, That what the business roundtable hoped was that embracing a set of platitudes would help them fend off more intrusive regulation. You know, that they could say to Senator Warren, look, we are voluntarily uh, moving in this direction. Um, And so, yeah, I think that, that part of what's going on here is what's known as greenwashing. Uh, and, and greenwashing is, is where companies um, basically want to appear to be very green. Um, and so they engage in things that don't actually cost them very much, but give off this sort of patina of, you know, we're hip, we're new, we're woke, we're socially activist. Um, and it's partly... There's there's a fair bit of evidence that millennial and and Generation Z folks, both as workers and consumers, um, prefer to engage with socially active firms. And then the other part of it again is you know basically staving off uh, affirmative government regulation to say to the SEC. You don't need to regulate climate change disclosures because we're all moving in that direction voluntarily. Well, so would I be wrong to hear you as saying that maybe they're just engaging in shareholder wealth maximization after all? In the long run, I think that it's very hard to imagine companies actually coming out and saying, We've got a zero-sum decision. We cannot simultaneously make everybody better off. Either the shareholders are going to be better off or our stakeholders are going to be better off. It's very difficult for me to imagine directors and officers of, of American companies saying, we're going to put our stakeholders first. And it's for two reasons. One is they've all been educated in this, you know, Friedman-esque model. But the other is we live in an environment today where there are dozens, if not hundreds, of hedge funds that specialize in shareholder activism that go out looking for companies that are allegedly underproducing shareholder returns, and coming into those companies, buying stock, and basically voting out directors 
and replacing them with directors who are more responsive to the shareholders. And as long as shareholders are the only ones that get to vote, um, and as as long as these activists have the kinds of literally trillions of dollars of assets under management that they can throw at these companies, it's going to be very hard for business to, to, to do things that are explicitly contrary to shareholder interests. Well, so Steve, in closing, I understand that this particular op-ed is just the beginning of a much longer project. I wonder if you could talk just briefly about where you see this project going and what you hope to accomplish with it. Thanks. Um, Yeah, I've been given a contract by Cambridge University Press to write a book on uh, essentially starting with the business roundtable decision and then looking at it first by saying, okay, is what the business roundtable is proposing consistent with what American corporate law requires? Um, If not, what impact do we think it'll have and then getting into some of these questions we've been talking about, about why the, the business roundtable did this. And with luck, the book will be done um, sometime next summer and be out sometime. Uh, well, when I say next summer, I mean summer of 2022. It'll be out sometime fall of 2022, just in time for Christmas 2022. Amazing. Well, I hope I can have you back on the show to talk about the book when it's published because the op-ed was fantastic and I really enjoyed talking to you about these ideas. That's great. I'd love to do it.